Welcome to Decoded, an engaging and insightful conversation with experts and policymakers who tangibly impact the economy. Welcome to our yet another episode. I am your host Ishika Daga. For today's discussion, we are joined by Mr. Jerry Rogers, a visiting professor at the Institute for Human Development. For over 30 years, sir has worked with the International Labour Office in a variety of positions, including director of the International Institute for Labour Studies. It's a pleasure to have you with us, sir. The theme for our discussion today is the role and relevance of labour market policies in emerging economies. Good, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, sir. Beginning with our first question, sir. Even though labour market policies are meant to ensure that the employees are benefited, but they have a tendency to restrict the flexibility with which organisations can function. This can, in turn, disincentivise job creation in the economy, leading to increased unemployment. So, what do you think governments should do to address this problem? Yes, I think that labour market flexibility is actually a red herring. It's uh, a lot of attention is paid to labour market flexibility, but that's not really the the issue. Uh, the Indian labour market, in reality, is already highly flexible. Um, one could argue too flexible uh, for the ninety percent of people in the informal economy. Um, so, trying to increase flexibility further seems to me to be focusing on on the wrong issue. And in fact, but I mean, this debate about labour market flexibility has been going on for for a long time. And for me, what it should really be, one should think about it in a slightly different way. It's not about the efficiency of the labour market and whether uh, enterprises uh, are able to to create jobs. It's it's really about what type of society do you want? It's um, do you do you want a society? In which um, workers are treated as, as commodities and can be moved around um, as employers wish, or do you want a society in, in which um, uh, workers are protected and included, and uh, uh, their work is part of a, a broader social goal? Um, and you and you can see that by contrasting, or you can illustrate that by contrasting countries which have very different. Attitudes to labour market flexibility. Uh, if you if you contrast Germany with the US, for example, here are, here are two countries, both with relatively low levels of of, of unemployment at the moment, um, but with entirely different labour market strategies with respect to this notion of flexibility. Uh, some people would say that the German labour market is is highly inflexible. It's much more difficult to, for enterprises to sack workers. Workers actually have a role in the boards of companies. Um, they're, they're part of the decision-making process. Uh, so Germany is very far from this notion of, uh, of uh, hiring and firing at will. Uh, the United States is almost off at the other end, which uh, uh, job security is very low. It is a very flexible labour market. Um, but the quality of work in the two countries, if you compare the quality, if you wanted, if you were a worker and you had to choose, would you work in Germany or would you work in in the United States? I, th- I think uh, the uh, the argument for choosing Germany is, is is very strong, and the German economy is also extremely productive. 
productivity per hour of work is this is higher higher in Germany than in the US. So so you see that that's the sort of issue you need to think about when you're when you're dealing with uh, this debate on labour market flexibility. For me, it's about building strong labour market institutions. Okay, sir. So that means all the developing countries, like most of them, have like flexible labour market, but the quality of job is most important. Yeah, I think I wouldn't say that most all. It varies quite a lot from country to country, but when you have a very large informal economy, that generates undesirable forms of flexibility, which needs to be addressed. Okay. Uh, so moving on to our next question, with specific reference to India, labour policies should ideally attach policy focus on the informal sector. However, by its very nature, implementation and checking systems are trickier here. How do you feel this dichotomy can be tackled? Well, a, a lot of people, you know, governments and enterprises, and employers, and even trade unions, if you if you ask them what should be done about the informal sector, the answer is formalize, um, formalize, formalize, formalize. That's easier for um, uh, all all concerned. But but actually, formalization. Is is only part of the answer. It, it's it's an over it's an oversimplification. So um, so so one needs to actually try and devise a policy for the informal economy, which is adapted to the needs of the people who work there. Um, a lot of a lot of informality is due to people who are unable to respect uh, poorly designed rules. Um, uh, or in the case of casual labor, because a lot of informal work is actually casual daily labor in India, it's about employers trying to avoid respecting the rules. Um, so what you what you actually need is a is a sensitive design of um, of regulation which accommodates people's needs for for livelihoods. Um, so you need a framework for the informal economy which are, which allows for that and very many people in the informal economy are self-employed so you've actually got to find ways of, uh, of securing those and then you've got to clamp down on exploitation because a lot of um, a lot of informality is actually can be traced to exploitation of workers directly or indirectly by, by large enterprises so, so that's the sort of uh, focus you need to adopt, uh, and you need to back it up with universal systems. So, in other words, you need to have your universal, your policy, social policy systems have to be based on universality and therefore not dependent to whether you're in the formal or the informal economy. So, pensions, um, healthcare, you, you actually need a system which provides uh, universal protection. And that actually, in turn, means that there's a critical role for the state, which has to invest more in in social policy. Um, you know, in in India, only about ten percent of GDP goes to um, social policy, including pensions, narega, health, um, education, um, and the the underinvestment in health and education is. Is well known. Um, in um, other countries, 
many other countries, the percentage is higher. In Brazil, it's 25%. India, 10 Brazil, 25%. Most um, OECD countries, you'll find 30-plus 30, 30 percent of GDP. Um, and that's the price you pay for a fair, uh, fully functioning economy. So, so, again, part of the answer to the problem of informality doesn't lie in direct intervention in the informal economy, is putting in place social protection systems which are used, which are universal, um, and um, in which both formal and informal workers have access. Okay. So this is why we are lacking behind like all, most of the developing countries which are in competition with us like Vietnam and this word follows our next question as well. Sir, do you think that due to the lack of a competitive labor-intensive sector, India could not take advantage of the US-China trade war as countries with much better labor reforms like Vietnam and Indonesia did? Well, I'm not sure that I agree that India doesn't have a competitive labor-intensive sector. It's, it does. Um, there's a, a huge Wait, what you mean is um, not competing in effectively on international markets for for garments and other labour intensive goods. I guess that's what you that's what you mean. And I guess it's it's certainly true that in India the priorities have tended to be elsewhere in high tech, um, uh, software, capital intensive production, pharmaceuticals. Uh, Auto industry, etc. So that, um, so I think it's probably true that the priorities tended to be public priorities tend to be put elsewhere, and and large scale, um, large enterprises have also tended to to focus elsewhere. Not not universally, because there are there are labour intensive sectors where India has been extremely successful. You know, the, the diamond sector is a labour intensive sector, and India has been extremely successful in, in the um, in the diamond sector, so, so I, I don't think you, you, you should um, you should generalise about that. Um, but I think there, there are two there are two directions which probably need to be looked at. One one is um, more focused public sector investment to support the sectors where there are niches in, in global markets, um, which um, uh, might involve investment in research and development, uh, investment in infrastructure, and investment in, in training. I mean, you said skill development is extremely important. The skill development, not in the sense of development of, of narrow skills, um, but, in put, but in putting in place um, the um, building up the capabilities of the workforce as a whole to be able to adapt to a changing economic in, environment. Um, and, and after that, it's back to Whilst the previous question is, is having uh, a solid system of social protection in place because that's what you also need to give workers security and, and commitment. And, um, and if, um, and if you, you look around the countries which have been more successful, most of them have that. Huh? They're, not, they're not operating on the basis of, of large volumes of, of unskilled, um, unprotected workers. They are actually... Um, yeah. Vietnam, in Bangladesh, you have to look at the um, what, what sort of institutional framework they 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 put in in place. Bangladesh has been forced to, to, to move up, and um, moving up hasn't done any 
any damage to the Bangladesh economy at all. So I think um, one has to, um, uh, once again, you have to put this in, 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 a, in a wider wider context. So I think about what sort of a, a social policy environment there is to, to support uh, uh, the uh, uh, creation of jobs and, and, uh, and the participation in global markets. All right, sir. So this is why we can see like Vietnam invest 7.5% of its GDP in only healthcare sector and India invest only 7.5% in all the social security schemes together. So this is what makes the difference. Otherwise, as per you, we are top the quality as per labor intensive sector. Right. No, I think competitiveness on global markets is, is not just a question of driving down your labor costs in is raising the capabilities and the security of the workers that are, doing the, that are employed in the sector's concern. Okay. So one of the flagship promises of the Modi government during the 2014 election was to bring large-scale labour reforms. And considering this, the central government has begun the process of consolidating its 44 labour laws into four labour codes. But the reform is facing opposition from trade unions. So sir, what are your opinions on this? Consolidating the labour code makes an awful lot of sense. Um, anybody who's tried to, to read through the Indian labour code uh, will find that it's, it's very confusing, it's very diverse, there's a lot of overreach, there are a lot of details which are regulated that are not needed, there's a lot of um, old, old stuff in there which is not no longer relevant. Um, so, so the, the, the principle of this reform seems to me to be absolutely right, that, um, that uh, you, you, you simplify in order to make the Labour Code clearer and, and easier to, to apply. So um, we, um, we shouldn't um, uh, at all object to that. I think you, know, you can illustrate it with um, you know, one, of, one, of the, um, one of the four areas is on wages, um, one of the four areas of reform or the four codes which are being prepared is around wages. Now, the, the, the previous minimum wage system in, in India is absolutely crazy. With uh, There are about 1,700 different minimum wages in different states and for different occupations and, um, and no national floor. There was a, a national floor which was actually brought in um, in the 1990s, that which um, was not obligatory, so a floor which is not compulsory is not a floor. So, so that there, there's a real problem of, of confusion in the, in the labour code by this, this huge diversity. So, trying to concentrate um, the, um, the efforts in a narrower range of issues, and in the case of minimum wage, putting in place a national minimum wage, which is part of the, part of the reform process. Which hasn't really been been implemented yet, but that's part of the reform process. Um, that um, that all seems to me to make an awful lot of sense. Now, you say there's a lot, there's opposition. Uh, why is why is there opposition? Well, the the risk in simplification is that you throw out the baby with the bathwater, and um, the um, uh, very often the devil is in the detail. So that if you if you don't take into account very carefully the, the, the detail of 
sort of systems of social protection. For instance, you try and simplify it down to something which is um, much um, much more consolidated, uh, much more streamlined. That then you you are of course running a risk of losing some of the the protections which are present. So this process of consolidation has to be done very carefully, and, and it's, I think it's entirely understandable that unions are extremely suspicious of this process, that they think that some of the, the rights which they have been struggling for over a long period of time are, are at risk in, in this process. Um, so so what, what can you do about this? I, I, I think um, we need to um, uh, think that there are the motivation of the reform is actually to reduce protections. I don't think that is at all the, the, the objective. But, but, but what, what may be missing is more of a process of social dialogue around the reform. I mean, I believe, I know there are consultations with unions. Unions have the chance to, to express their views. But uh, I'm, I'm almost sure that that process could be strengthened. That by, by involving in a process of reform, all of the actors who are concerned, and actually giving them not just the ability to, to protest, but also to, to influence the direction and the content of the reform. Um, that's very important. Governments don't have a monopoly on wisdom. The labor market is, is actually um, a place where there are many actors. So I think that um, the, um, the, the way to try and overcome opposition it's not through confrontation, but, but through attempting to, to strengthen dialogue. So now our next question is, uh, since the urban-rural divide tends to be more prominent in emerging economies, migration of labor is often unavoidable. This tends to increase the importance of national laws and schemes over local ones. For example, one nation, one ration card. Do you feel this comparative between national and local is needed? That is, should we even comparing them at all or calling national laws important is fair? Well, India, India, is, um, India is a big country. Um, but, um, but in many ways, it's an integrated labor market. Um, the, um, of course, there are differences in uh, across states in the way labor markets function and uh, patterns of skills and the qualifications required and so on. So I mean, there, there are differences, but in, but in one sense, there's a, a single, uh, at, at the base, there's a single labor market. And, um, and that implies that there is a need for a national framework. You, you couldn't, uh, you can't possibly have a labor market in India in which Different states uh, attempting to undercut each other with with worse with worse labour conditions, and actually, you know, even in the constitution, it's um, it's uh, uh, it's explicit that the um, the, the labour domain is one of the areas where both um, the centre and the states have the right to legislate, and that's and yet historically there's been a balance. You have to have both the national and the local. Um, so, relating to the specifics of your question, that means um, uh, some of the basic things which workers need, like health care, uh, 
and uh, and social security and access to to food to to Russian cards and so on. Logically, that should be part of a of a national framework because they need to be that valid um, everywhere. Um, and that's um, that's why this issue of migration is is so important. It's why the the coronavirus crisis and its impact on on migrants has, has shown this up um, very clearly that um, um, any migrants, formal migrants who are not documented, find themselves um, adrift um, because there isn't a sufficient, um, a sufficient well-defined national national framework which in, in, includes them. So, so, so you do need the national framework, um, but it's it is a large country with very diverse situations and needs. Um, so you need some sensitive combination. You need some basic systems which are nationals and you need a national floor. But, you know, Kerala has higher wages and labor standards than many other states. You, you certainly don't want to, to undermine that. So you, you need can you set an example for the state. So you, so you, need, you need to have in place this, this basic national systems which provide the, the core defense of rights of workers and access to protection. Um, plus, plus state level and, and, and local systems, which may perfectly well um, go uh, have higher thresholds and, and, and higher goals. Um, that that's the sort of framework. So, so, so I'm not sure that this is a. And by the way, I think that that sort of point of view is broadly accepted in India and has been broadly accepted in India. So, um, I think the what is been happening is that um, the um, the national systems, especially with this sudden flood of migrants um, returning home and finding themselves in in ghastly situations uh, as a result of the the virus, has actually brought to people's attention the fact that the national system doesn't always work that well. And I think the answer to that is uh, yes, uh, the, it's uh, almost certainly needs to be strengthened. Okay. So that means, basically, it means national laws are important for a country as big as India. Absolutely, you know, it goes beyond India. It, the the, um, the international labour system sets global uh, uh, sets uh, global rules, uh, uh, principles, flaws. Uh, um, Issues need to be addressed, rights that need to be protected. So that, um, so, so, so you need that. Um, you need it within India, but you need it globally as well. Mm-hmm. So, with the advancement of technology, there is a rise in the gig economy in developing markets. And taking specific example of India, we can see that one in four freelance workers globally are from India. Thus, what are your views on providing security to this large temporary working class? Yeah, and that's a very good question because it's, um, this is this is one of the big issues of the future. The, the existing systems, institutions, laws very often do not work very well or are not well adapted to the gig economy, and that's actually in the, in the labour international labour organisation. That's something that people are people are actually working on trying to trying to work through what sort of specificities about the gig economy call for new sets of new sets of rules. I think um, so, so 
the answer is the question is right, but we don't yet have the answer. Um, I think you have to take into account that the gig economy is, is actually very diverse. Um, you have disguised wage workers. If you look at uh, food deliveries or, uh, or Ola and Uber and uh, um, many of people working in that part of the gig economy are in reality wage workers who are operating through intermediary. And in, in a number of countries, uh, they have been their, their legal decisions that, for instance, Uber drivers are wage workers and are entitled to the same protections as, um, as regular wage workers. So, so there's a part of the gig economy which looks like it's an attempt to, to escape from the constraints of the um, of labor market regulation. Um, that's part of it. Um, then you've got um, the high-tech sector, which is entirely different to uh, the, the people doing software online, the people who are um, providing business services online, um, uh, the people who are teaching online. Um, there, there's, a, there's a whole number of um, uh, activities within the gig economy which have emerged um, more recently, but which are basically people who are doing them are largely self-employed or working in small groups um, they they have and very often they're, they're working globally if you are if you're teaching um, how to play the guitar it doesn't really matter whether your pupil is in England or in or in India or in Brazil um, provided you can the same language um, so, so that's another category and then you, but you've got more, you've got part-time workers, you've got a lot of people who have a regular job but who actually are able to sell some services online or, as a part-time activity. So you, you have all of these different situations and it's not at all clear that a single framework of regulation is, um, is going to work for, for everybody. So some of the issues are just the same as you've always got for the self-employed. So, so the self-employed um, very often uh, don't belong to a good system of social protection. They may not have uh, good pension rights and they may be in very precarious situations, so they may not have access to health care, etc. So, so part of that, a, there, whether it's the gig economy or not the gig economy, that, that issue is there. So part of your problem is trying to build up institutions to protect self-employed workers and then um, gig economy or not, it's, it's valid. Um, I think there's a lot, there's lots, a lot of work that's required in this area, but um, but one thing that's important is that um, uh, gig economies tend not to be very well organised. Um, uh, you know, the state doesn't necessarily have the the instruments to intervene and protect, especially when a lot of this stuff is happening across borders. Um, so if you if the state in one country intervenes, it just moves somewhere else. Um, so, so that's the question of, of gig workers themselves organising more effectively. And the traditional trade unions have not been able to deal with this very well. They're, I mean, there are examples, there are cases where there's been um, a trade union movement, but the traditional form of organisation is not really very well adapted. So the, the, that's another area of, of work to try and build up um, the forms of organisation where gig workers can actually defend their interests. 
इज देर एनी कंट्री स्पेशली अ डेवलपिंग मार्केट वेयर द गवर्नमेंट हैज कम अप विद सम फ्रेमवर्क फॉर द गी इकोनॉमी स्पेशली वर्कर्स फॉर दैट इकोनॉमी
pick up much faster. Out all of your workers, and you're starting from scratch again. So, so, so maintaining the employment link. So, the governments ought to be not just this is just happening about India. This is globally, governments ought to be subsidising the employment relationship um, as much as they possibly can. So, it's not it's not only about distributing income; it's about subsidising the employment relationship. And then I think everybody's aware in India of the need to support migrants, the, the catastrophe that has, uh, has uh, hit uh, migrants, uh, especially casual workers, uh, losing their jobs. Is, uh, the, the reason why that's been so catastrophic, and it goes back to some of the points I was making earlier, is because of the lack of, of, of universal systems that they can fall back on. So there, there are many issues here. I, I think uh, this is a bigger issue than we can... Um, deal with um, deal with here, but but a lot of this is about thinking, investing for the long term. You you need to mobilise research and researchers uh, around this. A lot of ideas out there, and and you need to pour resources into it, supporting incomes, supporting employment, supporting enterprises. But the size of the packages in in industrialised countries are, are huge, much much bigger in proportional terms. Than, than in India, um, and uh, and you need those huge packages if you're not going to end up with catastrophic effects on, on the economy and and the workers and the population as a whole. Okay, so here we end our questions. So thank you so much. Really honored to host you, sir, and we got such valuable insights. Good. Okay. Well, I I hope it's useful for you. This podcast was brought to you by the Economic Society of Sri Ram College of Commerce. You can find us on all podcast streaming platforms. And thank you for tuning in.